No. How about that? Awesome. Good evening. It's uh, great to be here with you all tonight. And before I get started, I, I want to first just thank you guys, not just for the opportunity to get to be here, because it is awesome to get to be here tonight. But I want to thank you uh, for all that you have done for me and my family. Uh, Dalreda is so special uh, to my wife and I. And, and even if we were to kind of be very specific and try to point to the exact place that helped encourage us in ministry more than any other place, it's here. And we feel like the reason we got excited about being involved in ministry is because of our time spent at, at Dalreda. You guys are absolutely incredible. I'm getting to work with some awesome folks and one of the greatest secretaries I remember in the world, Miss Patsy. I love her to death. And I am just so grateful for everything that you've done for us and, and our family. And one of the things that Lorianne texted me right before I walked in the doors is, please, please make sure you tell them thank you. And so that's what I wanted to do, to thank you guys for the huge blessing that you've been in our life. And it's so awesome to get to be here with you tonight. Right after Jesus had encountered the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well and offered her that living water, the disciples were a little bit concerned about Jesus, I guess, because he had a very long day of ministry. And so they thought he was hungry, so they said this, Rabbi, eat something. And then Jesus gives them a very unusual response, and he says this, I've actually already eaten, but you didn't know about it. And you know, at this point, the disciples are probably thinking, what in the world? When did you eat? I mean, we've been standing here this whole time. Did somebody slip him like some carrots and hummus when we weren't looking? When in the world did you eat something? And then he said this. He said, my food is to do the will of the one that sent me. What he's saying to them, he said, listen, when all you can think about is fill me, provide for me, the only thing that I'm focused on, the way that I get my nourishment and sustenance is by pouring into the lives of other people. I hope you see the scene. The disciples were only concerned about consuming when Jesus Christ could only think about contributing. But let's be real for a second. We're not too different from those disciples, are we? When I was a kid, there was a jingle of a popular fast food restaurant that went like this. And I'm probably going to butcher it, by the way. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, onion, pickle, all on a what? Sesame seed bun. And so if you went to McDonald's and you asked for a Big Mac, what were you going to get? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickle, all on a what? Sesame seed bun. You were going to get exactly what they gave you. Then it was around, I think, maybe the 80s. That Burger King came along and completely changed the landscape of fast food. And they said, listen, we're not going to be like McDonald's and tell you what you are going to eat. We're going to let you what? Have it your way. And the idea was because you, the customer, are king. So if you come to Burger King and you want a Whopper with one tomato, half a pickle, and some ketchup, you are going to get a Whopper with one tomato, half a pickle, and some ketchup because you of all people deserve it because what? You are king. But then we fast forward to today and there really isn't that much of a difference, is there? The idea of self-promotion that I'm first, that before anything 
becomes me. Now, these are two phrases that I may be new for some of you, and I will tell you, your life will not be any better because you know these two random facts. But there are two popular phrases right now, and one of those is this, treat yourself. And I will translate that for you. It's this, treat yourself. And this is basically the idea that if you want to go out and, and get the most expensive meal that can be offered, and you may not have a dime to your name, you go out and you get that most expensive meal because you need to what? Treat yourself. And, and you may not be able to afford this mortgage, but you go out and you get it anyway because you need to go and you need to treat yourself. Then there's this other phrase that I heard maybe about a year or two ago, and I kept hearing young people say, I want to be goat. I'm like, why of all animals would you pick a goat? You know, I didn't quite make much sense. And then I started to figure out what that meant because they said LeBron James was goat. No, Michael Jordan's goat. I'm like, what are we talking about? Found out that it just stands for greatest of all time. And, and what people want to be today is goat. They want to be the greatest. And even last year, the second most sold books besides the Bible were self-promotion books. One of those most sold books was Six Ways to Get Yourself Noticed, and the other was Great Ways to Promote Yourself. And so we see the landscape and the atmosphere of what we're immersed in right now, and what's happened is this, unfortunately. It's actually made its way into the church. And maybe you've heard people make statements like this one. Well, I'm just church shopping. I visited 70 churches in my community and I'm trying to find a church that meets my needs because of all people, right? I am king. What I want, what I need matters the most. And so we have to understand what we are and what we are not. We have to understand what it is that we're to do and what we're not to do. See, God did not design us just to be a bunch of spiritual consumers, but he also designed us to be spiritual contributors. And the church is not something that just exists for us, but we as the church exist for the rest of the world. It's because Jesus didn't say actually to treat yourself, did he? In Luke 9, 23, he said to deny yourself, for the lack of a better term. And he said, in fact, you wake up on a daily basis and you look for ways to put yourself to the side and you take up that cross and you follow me. And he didn't call us to be goat, did he? No, he actually said, if you want to be the greatest, it's the one that's the what? The least. And takes on the form of a servant. I was so glad that when Dr. Edwards sent me the topics that this one was still available, Jesus the servant. And I was excited because it sounded somewhat simple. But then I started to think about how to go in a direction with this lesson of what part of Jesus' servanthood do you talk about? Because it's hard to pinpoint like one area of Jesus' servanthood that you could talk about because there's hundreds of examples maybe you could think of of Jesus serving other people. So what I decided to do for this lesson is this. I opened up my Bible to the book of Matthew. And I just started flipping, looking at those bold headings at the very top of each section. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so I was kind of flipping through, and I was writing down all the times that Jesus served. And I was trying to put those, if I could, in two categories. And so this may be stretching it just a little bit, but for the sake of trying to narrow it down, I have summed up Jesus' service 
into two different forms, and it's these. We'll call the first group washing feet, and the other way he served is through breaking bread. So tonight we're going to talk about how Jesus served through washing feet and breaking bread and and what these examples of washing feet and breaking bread in these categories can actually mean to us in our service. And so let's talk about washing feet. In John chapter 13, the Passover is about to happen. And Jesus knows that his time to die is about to happen. And, And he calls this meal with his disciples what is we know, of course, as the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, to go up into this upper room. And and Jesus has had a very difficult week. On Monday, he goes into the temple and they're making it a place of dens of thieves and so he starts flipping over tables. On Tuesday, he gets in a very heated argument with the religious leaders. On Wednesday, we have no clue what Jesus is doing. Then on Thursday, Jesus is getting ready for this meal. And and you know as Jesus is walking up those steps, getting ready to meet his disciples, there's a lot of emotion that is wearing on his heart. Now the Bible doesn't say, but you have to imagine that as he's walking up those steps, he's kind of looking back a little bit. He's thinking about all those moments that he had with what has become some of his closest friends, the disciples. He's going to think about the high moments, the low moments, the miracles, the times that people's lives have changed, the way that his life has intersected with other people. And he has good feelings as he's looking back to all those awesome memories. But you also know that as he's walking up those steps, he's probably looking ahead too, isn't he? And he's got to be going through in his mind what is about to happen No doubt, because he is God's son, he's probably having pictures in his mind of getting beaten, getting spit upon, carrying a cross, getting that cross to that hill and dying on a cross for the sins of mankind. And so as he carries that emotion up those steps and trying to narrow his focus in to let his disciples know the important nature of what is next, He walks into that room and his disciples are acting like a bunch of two-year-olds. They start having this conversation about which one of them is the greatest. The which one is what? Goat. (laughs) And you know that there's this conversation that Peter's probably stepping up saying, well, it's probably me because while the rest of you were in the boat, I was actually stepping out on water And then John's like, well, what about me? Because, you know, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. And then Bartholomew's like, well, guys, don't forget about me. They're like, yeah, we'll forget about you. No one's even going to remember your name, Bartholomew. And so they're having this competition to wonder which one of us is going to be the greatest. And they miss something that was very obvious right in front of them. See, it was common practice during this day to do two things when a guest came into your home. One of the things you would do is you would greet that person with a holy kiss. Another thing that not the host of the house, not the one that called the meal together, but a servant or someone else in the house would actually wash the feet of those that were there. And see, part of the reason is they walked on roads with shoes that were like sandals or Birkenstocks. And one of the things that we know about their roads is that animals would walk down those roads. And I know it sounds disgusting, but they would poop on those roads. And so you can imagine what their feet smelled like. They stunk. And then when they would sit at a meal, it wasn't like sitting at a normal table. They would actually lean and recline. And so when you were leaning, the feet of the person right beside you was right near your face when you were about to eat. 
If you had a sick stomach, this was not a good day to eat around a table with stinky, nasty feet. And so what the disciples should have been doing is grabbing a towel, but the only thing that they could grab was their pride. And it caused them to miss the obvious need that was right in front of them. Have you ever noticed that when you're caught up in yourself, that sometimes you can miss the obvious things that you need to do? And sometimes they're right in front of you. So Jesus gets a towel. He gets a slave apron. He gets a basin filled with water. And he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. On all fours, one after another. And please don't miss the fact that he stopped and washed Judas's feet too. And if that isn't a picture of loving your enemies, then I don't know what else is. And so he begins to wash the feet of those men that are there, and they start to be like, no, listen, you can't do this. Like, of all people, you know, you should, we need to be the ones doing this. And he's probably thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> you should be, but you're not. And, and, and this is, I'm trying to put this into terms of today. This is almost like the Queen of England coming over to your house and cleaning your toilets. But this is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the author, the perfecter, everything that is on all fours washing feet. And then they start to say, listen, you can't do this. He said, I have to do this. He said, right now you don't understand this, but one day you will. Parents, have you ever said that to your kids? Like right now you don't get what mommy and daddy are doing, but one day you will. Listen, right now this may not make sense to you, but very soon you're actually going to be doing the exact same thing that I'm going to be doing. You're going to be serving and meeting the needs of people. In fact, Peter, you're about to embody servanthood in just a little bit. You, you don't understand it right now, but one day you will. Here's what I love about Jesus. He looks out and he sees proud hearts and dirty feet. He sees a need. And he says, I can do that. Not once does he say, that's beneath me. Or that's something that no king would ever do. But he understood something that they have to learn and understand. That the greatest is the one that becomes least. It reminds me of a story of a husband and wife where the husband ended up getting really sick. And so the wife decided to take her husband to this doctor to get some CAT scans, to look over his body, to kind of figure out what in the world's going on, what's causing all the health problems. The doctor did that CAT scan. He did the blood work. He, he said, all right, why don't you go back into the, into the lobby and then I'll call you in when I'm ready to tell you the results. The doctor walked right back into that lobby and he said, I want to meet with your wife first. And he sat the wife down in his office and he said, I want to let you know some very bad news. Your, your husband does have cancer. And left untreated, he will die. But here's the good news. The good news is if, if I give him the chemo treatments and then you wait on him hand and foot, he's going to be better. He said, in fact, what you're going to have to do is this. You're going to have to cook every meal for him because he needs to be on a strict diet. You're going to have to keep everything clean and tidy because he's going to need a good environment. And, and there's going to be nights where he's going to be flat out, worn out from the chemo treatments. You're going to help, have to maybe even give him a bath or you're going to have to help put him on the toilet. I mean, you are literally going to have to wait on him hand and foot. And so if I do the chemo treatments and you're willing to do that, then your husband will, in fact, live. And she said, okay. And so she walks out to that lobby and the husband's like, well, what did the doctor say? 
And she said, well, honey, the doctor said you're going to die and there's nothing we can do. Now, I know that's a silly story, but I do think it helps illustrate how at times we see the obvious needs of things that we need to do that are right in front of us. But do we take the approach that Jesus does and sees where he says, hey, there's a need and I can do that. One of my favorite passages when it comes to servanthood is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. And what it says is this, it says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you as an exile. What he's meaning here by exile is exactly, I think, what Peter meant in 1 Peter when he calls them elect exiles. That where you are is not where you're meant to be, okay? This is your temporary place of residence, I have sent you like an exile. This is where you're going to temporarily be. So since you know that this is your temporary home, then love others in a very permanent kind of way. And so the way you do that is by seeking the welfare of your city. He says, here's why you do it. You do it for two, in two ways. Number one, you pray for your city. And so then I have to ask myself, all right, do I pray for my city? But here's the second thing he mentioned. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. So you want your community to be loving and your church to be loving? Then you be loving. So you want your church to serve and your community to serve? Then you serve. You want your church to be friendly and your community to be friendly? Then you be friendly. If you want the welfare of your city to be great, then you be great. We can't experience things that we are not. And so he's saying, listen, if you want something awesome, then you be awesome. And then you will experience the welfare that you are seeking to try to find. And so I was trying to make this as practical as possible because I don't want this to be like a pump-up speech. I want us to know what to do tomorrow. And so I Googled, what are the needs in communities? And I think I added to that from a church's perspective. And I found this really interesting survey that was done last year by Christianity Today. And and basically what they did was this. They polled evangelical churches all across the United States and just asked the leaders of those churches, what are the main needs in your community where your church is? I think they got something like 13,000, 14,000 responses back. These were the top three needs in the communities. But the way I look at it is this. Obvious ways for you and I to know how to wash feet. One of the primary concerns is safety. Now, a lot of us, we live in very safe places. We're not concerned about, you know, someone breaking into our homes or, or living in fear at night. But there's a large amount of people that are. Now, I'm not here to give you the answers to everything of what to do. But I do think one of the things you can do is support your law enforcement. I know one of the things that no law enforcement has ever turned down is you coming into their office, bringing them a meal, some home-baked cookies, and praying for what they do. It's because if you want welfare in your city, then you bring the welfare. Also think about number two is hunger. I looked up uh, some statistics for Alabama, but also from Montgomery County specifically. Right now in Alabama, one in four children are living in food insecurity. That means one in four children in the state of Alabama do not know where their next meal is going to come from. And then I looked at the kids specifically in Montgomery County. 97% of the children in the Montgomery public school system are free reduced lunch. A lot of them, too, are going, they go to school and they love going to school because that's the only time they get meals. I, I, when I was doing my student teaching, I went to Highland Gardens Elementary. 
uh, and I was there for about 12 weeks. And one of the saddest things to see was these kids come into that, that cafeteria at breakfast and sit down and literally scarf down that food as fast as they could. Because they weren't getting a meal the night before for dinner. Now, what can we do about that? Well, something happened in Alabama a few years ago that some of you that are in the school systems, you probably already know about that I think is an awesome opportunity for churches. It's called the Backpack Food Program. I don't know if every county does this, but I know it's available to all counties. And basically what it is, it's an opportunity for churches to call the school counselor and to say, hey, when the kids are at PE, when they're out, you know, not around other kids because don't, they don't want to embarrass the kids, what are some food supplies that you can put in their backpack and they can take home with them and the parents can cook at night? And so what happens is you, we just call our school counselor. He tells us, you know, how many kids have a need. And when they're not in the classroom, that school counselor comes in and packs their backpack with all of the things that they, their parents can need to make a meal for that night. I mean, again, I'm not trying to tell you guys what to do. The creativity, I think, is inside every single person here. But this is just an idea. But then there's the third thing here, addiction, recovery, and rehab. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I will say that I feel like the denominational world has taken this and run with it. And we can't be far behind, okay? We have to step up to the plate because this is a major need. In fact, I've listed one, two, three, but this was the number one concern from people. There's actually a book written by Trent Childers that has the gospel clear and plain written through it in a way that can help get people out of drug or alcohol abuse. So there is a resource out there that is available that teaches truth that we can also use to get people out of these very difficult situations. And and I hope that you understand, I'm not trying to make it all action specific because service is not just about action, it's about attitude. It, it's, it's about knowing that I'm about to meet a need and I'm not doing it because I'm getting thanked. I'm getting patted on the back. I'm doing it because I'm literally trying to be like my Jesus and to serve in the way that he served because what? I am a servant of the most high God and when I serve other people, I am actually serving Jesus Christ himself. So that's category one, washing feet. Category number two is breaking bread. We, of course, know Jesus came to this earth seeking and saving the lost, but Luke 7 actually says that he came to this earth eating and drinking. And one of the things that N.T. Wright said, he said around every single corner, Jesus was eating. (laughs) And one statement he specifically made was he was eating his way through the gospel accounts. And it's true. Look at the gospel of Luke. He is eating around a table around every corner. Why? Because when you break bread with other people, it brings to the surface the needs of those that are you breaking bread with. See, because in Acts chapter 2, they put on Christ in baptism. Then what did they do? They went into each other's homes, and then they met needs. The only way that they knew about the needs was because they did what? They broke bread. They sat across from John, and they found out John was going through a difficult time, and so they met John's needs. It was through the breaking of bread. It was through that time spent together that they knew about what was going on with each other. And so this is why I think Jesus emphasized it. And and I want to mention four reasons why I think we need to emphasize breaking bread today more than ever. Because number one, because of the breakdown of the family unit. We have children right now that are being rushed into adolescence. When they get there, there's no one to lead them. We have split homes more than ever. And people are looking for connection. MLI Durkheim did a study. and, And in his study, one of the things that he found is that families that actually eat together on a regular basis, not in front of a TV, but face to face, their children are actually 80% more likely to not get involved in drug abuse or alcohol abuse or premarital relations with someone of the opposite sex. 
Because it's the time of connection, but it's also because of that moment of accountability that you can provide around a table. Number two, because of increased mobility. We know people are coming and going in alarming rates. We're not in the day anymore where people used to stay in the same place and, and they would die in the same place. People are always moving. The need for connection is growing. Number three, heavy workloads. You ask anybody, what will they tell you they are? Busy. And Satan uses that. If he can't make us bad, he's going to make us busy. He's going to fill our lives with so many good things that we don't have enough energy left for the essential things. Number four, the rise of social media. We're, we're connected, yes, but we're also disconnected more than ever. You go to a restaurant, you see people absorbed into a screen instead of absorbing themselves into the lives of people around them. Jesus was an incredible model for breaking bread, and I think there's two reasons why. Number one is because Jesus understood the art of listening to other people. We don't really listen today with the intent to understand. We listen with the intent to respond or to reply. But Jesus was an incredible listener. I think about when the two men were going down that road to Emmaus. They're very downcast because Jesus had just died. It felt like to them their hopes and dreams were out the window. And, and so they're walking with their heads down and Jesus walks up and he asks these guys, hey, what are you talking about? Like, where have you been? Have you not heard what has happened? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has died. Have you not heard about these things? And he says again, what things? Do you realize what Jesus could have done? He could have walked up and been, ta-da, <laughs> it's me. But instead, his first impulse was to listen. And I think the reason is he's modeling for us that a lot of times what people care about more than you providing the answer or the solution to their problem, they just want to know you care. They just want to know that you sincerely love them. That's why God calls us in 1 Peter to actually sincerely love one another. And you can sincerely love someone by actually listening without intending to even respond or reply. Maybe that's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. <laughs> so we'll listen more and speak less. When I was uh, the campus minister um, over at university, and some of you will probably remember this, there was a young man that was in our college group named Major Sanders. And Major uh, would go every single Sunday to preach at this little church on the Alabama-Georgia line. Major was on his way to preach one Sunday and uh, was killed in a car accident. And his older brother, uh, Malvin, was a good friend of mine as well. And so that was on a Sunday. On Monday morning, I called Malvin, and he was in Atlanta. And I said, hey, buddy, I was wanting to see if Philip and I could go and, and just sit with you today and, and, and your family. And he's like, oh, absolutely. Actually, it would probably be good for my parents if you guys came over. And so I remember we get in the car, and, and Philip and I start rehearsing what we're going to say and what we're not going to say, because we didn't fully comprehend the scene that we were about to see. I had never walked into someone's living room that had just lost their child, and at a young age. And so we were rehearsing what to say, what not to say, and, and I remember we, we walked through the doors of their house, and it's almost as if God shut my mouth up, because I kept wanting to say something. I was wanting to say some kind of word of encouragement, Something that could just fix everything, you know, but nothing was coming out. And, and then I remember at the very end when Philip and I were about to walk out those doors, Major and, and Malvin's mother said, thank you guys so much for coming. And I wanted y'all to know everything y'all said was exactly what I needed to hear. But here's the kicker. We didn't really say anything. Again, sometimes what people want to know is that you care. 
more than you have the answer or the solution to their problem. Jesus was a great listener. And I think another reason why he broke bread so well and what we can learn is that he gave his time. We always talk about how we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time to do this. Don't have enough time to do that. We all have the same amount of time that our sovereign God has allotted us. It's just what are we choosing to do with that time? Jesus had three and a half years of ministry and he got a whole lot done. He was on his way to heal this little girl and, and, and he stopped to deal with this woman who touched his garment. The disciples were like, keep going. He's like, no. I've always got time to meet a need. A man was lowered bottom end through a random person's house and they made a skylight of their house and lowered him down in the middle of Jesus preaching his sermon. He stopped the sermon. He met the need. Little children ran up to Jesus. Disciples were pushing them away. Jesus says, no, I always have time for the children. And even that moment in John 13 when Jesus was getting ready to eat a meal, he interrupted his meal, something we don't like to interrupt, to meet a need of someone else. Jesus was so good at giving other people his uninterrupted time. So as we close, I want to mention three things that I think that this can all be summed up in. It's this. Number one, we are called to serve people, not to save people. And that should put a lot less pressure on us. It's very insulting and it's very dangerous to think that we are the answer to someone else's problem. We're not. But Jesus Christ is the answer to their problem. And, and that's why it's important for us to serve on two different dimensions. Number one, to pro- provide relief. And number two, point them to restoration. I think about after the storms came through Tuscaloosa, Huntsville, and pretty much decimated a lot of that area. Probably like a lot of us in, in this area, we flooded up there. But the difficult thing for them was the fact that for about four or five weeks, a lot of people came and, and helped them. But after that, no one was to be found. They didn't just need the temporary relief. They also needed to get back on their feet. They needed restoration. That's what happened in the story of the Samaritan. When he saw that Jewish man, he, he put him on the donkey. He treated his wounds. But then what did he do? He basically put him in a bed and breakfast and said, hey, I want to help him get back on his feet. So, so we don't have to save people, but we do serve them. And one of the greatest ways we serve them is getting them back on their feet and pointing them to the place of restoration. Number two, is we're here to relate to people. Again, similar to the point before, not to rescue them. I did not know this until this past two or three weeks ago when I was getting this lesson ready, that the word rescue is mentioned in the Bible 80 times. And every single time it's mentioned, it's only mentioned in relation to what God does, not what we do. But we can relate to people. I think about how Jesus with this, this, uh, the, the woman at Jacob's well Um, You know, he sat there and actually asked her question after question before he did what he could have done even on the road to Emmaus. Hey, it's me. (laughs) Because he understood the value of relating to someone before we sought to even fix their problem. But a final thing that we have to do, we have to understand that we are people that reach out. We never reach down. And, And I think it's easy at times to reach down to people instead of reaching out to people because we look at people as projects to help. People are not projects to help. They're people to love. And, and, and when maybe what has caused the, our, our viewpoint to be wrong at times to serve people, and I'm talking about myself with this too, is that we classify ourselves into two groups. There's those of us that serve the needs of other people and help people, and that there's those of us that need help. We are both. Both. 
we all are to serve, but we all need help. I'm not serving you because I'm better than you. I'm serving you because I'm just as broken, just in a different way than you are. I'm not serving you because I have it all figured out. In fact, there's a lot of ways that I don't have it figured out. But I have experienced something great and I want you to experience what I've experienced as well. So it's not because I'm better than you. I'm reaching not down to you. I'm reaching out to you. And so in Acts chapter 9, there's a story of a lady named Dorcas. And Dorcas had something said of her that is incredible that I would love to have been said of me and maybe hopefully can be said of you. And it was this. The Bible says, and this will always be there, that Dorcas was always doing good. See, Dorcas saw the needs of those that were in our community. She made garments and gave them those garments. She saw the widows. She served the widows. And, and, and she died. And God brought her back to life. And one of the things we know is God doesn't bring someone back to life unless he has a very divine purpose for that person. God brings her back to life because she was someone that was what? Always doing good. It makes me think, if, if, if I were to die, would God want me back so badly because I was just so needed in his community to serve the needs of other people? And then I ask myself, if someone were to say I was always doing something, what would they say I was always doing? Would they say, I'm always doing good? Or would they say, I'm always gossiping about other people? Would they say that I'm always serving those in my community? Would they say, I'm just always on Facebook? What would it be that they would say that I'm always doing? We have been saved to serve. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been healed to help other people. And, and I hope that we can learn to embrace what is our calling, and that is to be a servant to those that are in our communities. So if you want welfare in your city, you will find it through your own welfare. And the beauty is, is when we actually serve other people, we are actually serving Jesus Christ. And so I want you to do this little activity with me. I do this at Robertsdale just to kind of help really get in and internalize this message. So if you don't mind, I want you to repeat this after me. I am a servant. Are we going to try that one more time? I'm a servant of the Most High God. When I serve others, I am serving Christ. Again, the reason why you and I are where we are, the reason why we've been blessed is to be a blessing. We have been saved to serve. We've been healed to help, not just to sit around and wait for heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us an incredible example through the life of Jesus Christ of what it looks like to serve. And Lord, our prayer is that we will be people that embody your way of service, that we will seek to wash feet, to look for ways to meet the needs of those that are in our community. And Lord, we also pray that we will be people that will break bread. We know, Lord, it's hard for us to understand the needs of those that are in our community if we don't get to know them and so, Lord, our prayer is that we will have open hearts and ready feet. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.